0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Not if you work miracles or if you cast out devils, but if you cast out discord and variance.
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We are hearing, I'm going to call it an address from Anthony Burgess. It's called The Necessity of Christian Unity, and it would have been
0: preached sometime in the mid-1600s in England. Uh, yeah, and if, by the way, you do hear some sounds on my end, that is rain. It is still the rainy season here in Cambodia, so we can't do much about that, but Joel, we have done an episode on Anthony Burgess before, uh, but if I can be honest with you, this was not the easiest episode to make. Anthony Burgess, if you look him up, the first thing you will find is a Wikipedia article about an English writer from the 1900s, which you may – he uh, wrote *The Clockwork Orange, if you are familiar with that novel. I have not – read the book, nah, that guy's from the 1900s, has nothing to do with our guy. When you eventually find an article on our guy, Anthony Burgess, from the 1600s, you will find out that he wrote books and that his entry in Wikipedia is extremely short. Now, we don't go to Wikipedia, it's not our only source here at Revive Thoughts, but that's just to give you an idea that when Wikipedia doesn't have much on you, it's going to be a little bit of a tough time. And. Uh, it, one of the first things it opens with, which I feel like this really describes how hard it is to find information on him, uh, it, it opens with a couple lines saying, he's not related to these other Burgesses, and it lists like two or three Burgesses that he's not in relation to. So again, when when you're going out of your way to tell us this Burgess is not the famous Burgess, that's the guy we're working with. He is not super well known his personal history is very short in fact i read a guy who was writing a master's thesis kind of style phd article on him and even he said trying to do an overview of his life he only had about one page of a word document so there's really just not a lot known on him Yet despite that, he was a very good preacher, and he has a sermon that we're going to listen to. It's on the topic of Christian unity. If you're interested in this topic, want to hear more from Joel and myself on this idea of what Christian unity is, uh, we did a revived conversation about a month ago on this very subject. We have a bit of a different take on it. We had a little bit of a back and forth over it, and that might be something you enjoy. Maybe give that a download and save that for listening to after the sermon and after you listen to the other Anthony Burgess.
2: Yeah, Anthony Burgess. Uh, I I love the narrator that we have for uh, for him, David C. He does such a good job uh, with it, and I love Anthony Anthony Burgess because it's just one of you know millions of preachers throughout the past two thousand years that uh, were great at their day and are forgotten. You know, like if it wasn't for Troy and I doing this show, there is a. Exponential chance. You will have never heard of Anthony Burgess in your whole life. Uh, and so just taking a little pocket of history and uh, shining a light on it and preserving it is pretty neat. And from such an era, again, he was in the 1600s sometime. He's, we don't know when he was born. Like, that's how unknown he is. We know he died in 1664. And we can kind of deduce things. We know his dad uh, was a teacher and helped him get into School. He went to Emmanuel College, which was a part of Cambridge, and he graduated from that in 1623. So you know, if we're if we're deducing, we're working back. You know, if an expert asked me when when would you peg uh, Burgess's birth, we'd put it probably right at 1600, right around the turn of the century. There, there's a quote from a man that he tutored that mentioned. He was a preacher, like he could tell you he was quite the preacher. And honestly, that's one of the two main things that seems to remain to his legacy today. His sermons, his preaching, because we have these sermons left over. And also, uh, he really did a lot of work to help with this doctrine of assurance. He was a big advocate for experiencing verifying truth. He really felt that one of the big problems of his day was people who knew the right answers, but had no experience engaging with God And he believed that was a a big problem.
0: His life might have been just a completely quiet one, might have gone completely under the radar, even more than it already did, had it not been for the English Civil War. During the 1640s, England had a big Civil War, and part of it was over theology, part of it was over what kind of Christianity would rule in England. it, It was a very complicated affair. We've covered episodes on the Civil War. It is always if we can be honest, it is a little bit confusing. There are definitely parts where it's like, wait, who's doing what? But if you go through the several episodes we've done now on guys from this era, if you check out you know, John Bunyan's one guy I can think of, uh, Richard Baxter, Richard Sibbs. we've done several of them, you can start to kind of put the picture together of what's going on at least a little bit. Uh, during, so but yeah, he was there. And while he was, during that war, he had to flee across the country. He was on the wrong side of where things were going, and he, he, he had to get out of town. And while he was kind of running away, he ran into other big-name theologians during that time, and they kind of made contact with each other. They realized they liked each other, like, hey, you, you think the same things I do? We're kind of on the same side. And he started to kind of networking and connecting with them. I mean, that's normally today, pastors network at like a conference or something, but back then you networked on the run, you know, for your life across the country. It's fine. And it worked out for him. And that actually really helped kind of launch his, again, career kind of in quotes, because he still, as much as he did a lot during his time, he, he, he will never be as famous as maybe some of the other people during that time. He would eventually get appointed to some councils and help out for different things. But also you could say for the most part, he stayed at one church, in the 1600s, served there for 30 years, and really only left that one church during times of intense persecution. And that wouldn't be an inaccurate way to describe his life either. He was just very faithful to the church God had called him to be. In 1662, uh, some laws kind of got passed in England. It got him kicked out of the church that he served in for 30 years, and within two years later, he would die and pass on. Um, And this is not a lot and maybe we skipped a little bit here and there that we covered in the other episode But sadly some of the very famous men of history who did a lot of great things They just aren't a lot of there wasn't a lot written down for us to know about them I I think of a really good example of this if you remember the episode Theodore Kyler uh, Where man, he had just so little written about him, but he was a very important guy during his time And this is just another one of those types of guys But one more thing that you want to know about him is that he made a very big contribution and the idea of the assurance of faith that was something that he really helped get the name out on and explain to people
2: yeah the the doctrine of assurance of faith and this was kind of a discussion that went around in the in the 1600s and is relatively popular now not a lot of things were written about his life itself but we can see what he was talking about and we can see what he was writing about and he wrote about this probably more than anyone else in the 1600s anthony burgess uh, he was at westminster during the creation of the Westminster Confession of Faith which was a doctrine that would go on to become one of the fundamental doctrines of the Presbyterian movement and many other reformed movements would borrow from it in their own confessions.
0: in this sermon we are going to listen to we will see anthony burgess he is fighting for and you know telling us about how important it is for christians to have unity Yet he lived at a time when division in Christianity, I mean, it was all over the place. It led to these big theological fights. I mean, you could honestly say it maybe led to wars that he lived through and he was seeing a crazy uh, time of his life where these, these convictions were leading to real problems. He would have lived long enough to see the pilgrims and the Puritans head to the new world. He just saw all these things happening and he looked around himself and he could see this importance of Christians coming together and uniting. But at the same time, he also had disagreements. Specifically, he is famous for having a big disagreement over with Richard Baxter over this idea of assurance of faith and what exactly it meant. And so, when we hear these words, these are not words of a man who, you know, was an academic, lived through kind of a peaceful time and, and saying, you know what, Christians need to be united. That's just a thought I had or something like that. Like, he lived through it deeply tumultuous age where Christian doctrine was literally leading to people dying and all kinds of uh, insane things that were happening. And he's saying, you know, this stuff is important, but we do also have to unite around something.
1: they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. John 17, 21. We have declared the nature of this unity. Let us now consider the excellence, benefit, and necessity of union among the godly. It is Christ's passionate prayer. The excellence and necessity of unity among Christians is made apparent by this vehement and affectionate prayer for it by the Savior. When he puts the whole company of believers together, he pitches upon this as the most eminent matter that they may be one. And although our Savior had not the spirit in measure, and so could not vainly repeat the same thing often yet within a little space— he does four times mention this in John 17:21 through 23 now certainly the thing which our savior in whom are the treasures of all wisdom greatly urged must be a very great moment it is not pardon of their sins justification adoption glorification that is mentioned here but unity It is as if the whole kingdom of grace and glory consisted in this. Obtain this, and you have all. As our Savior prayed then, so he preached love and unity. In relation to justification, he commended faith above all. In relation to sanctification, he includes everything under love. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as he says in John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment, not that the duty was old, only envy and malice had so prevailed upon the Jews. To love was a new thing, as if it had not been a duty required before. In John's epistles, it is called both new and old, as in 1 John 2, 7 and 8. And then again, new because there are new motives and a new pattern. Love one another as I have loved you. Again, John thirteen thirty four. There was never such a pattern in precedent before, so that it is not every kind of love and unity which answers Christ's prayer, but that which is in the highest degree of unity. It is added, By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, If ye have love one to another. Not if you work miracles or if you cast out devils, but if you cast out discord and variance. Therefore, there is not a greater scandal to religion and holiness than when those who believe are like the Levite's concubine who was cut into many pieces. Again, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you in John 15.12. This is Christ's commandment, as if there were nothing else he required but this. And as if this were not enough, in verse 17, he says, These things I command you, that ye love one another. As if he should have said, If bare information will not do it, if instruction will not do it, I lay my command and charge upon you. It is one way to bring the world to believe the truth. Secondly, this unity in love is a special means to bring the world to believe the truth and receive Christ. So that what the preaching of the word and gifts, yes, miracles, used to do, unity and agreement may do. This is twice affirmed to be the consequence of unity, that the world may believe that you have sent me in John 17, 21 and 23. This is a special way to convince all the enemies of the truth. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And do we not see by experience that heretics and all the profane are emboldened in their wickedness by nothing more than the differences and opinions of those who are not godly? Do they not in books and otherwise in derision say that one sect has the Spirit of God while another says they have the Spirit and yet both are contrary to one another? Can the Spirit of God be contrary to himself? Can he be a spirit of truth in one and a spirit of falsehood in others? Now, although this is not a good argument, because the Spirit of God is communicated only in measure to the godly, therefore they know only in part, and so they love only in part, and there are many errors and divisions we are prone to, yet this is a very great stumbling block. Therefore, woe to that godly man who by his pride, self-conceit, or erroneous doctrine brings such a scandal to religion. What if many perish to hell because of your stubborn spirit? It is true, there ought to be zeal against errors and corruptions, even in the godly. You see that when Peter did not walk right, Paul resisted him to his face and would not give place to him or other false teachers. No, not for an hour, as he says in Galatians two five. Mark that, no, not for an hour. Some thing, let them alone, they'll recover themselves. They will do no hurt. Truth needs not be afraid. Yet Paul was afraid that an hour's forbearance might do hurt. Therefore, he says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, as if an hour's forbearance might hinder the continuance of truth. So we are to use scriptural zeal and scriptural means to convince even those that are godly when they err in doctrine. Therefore, the scripture does not commend the kind of unity in love which lets all errors and profaneness alone, but unity in that which is good, unity in that which is truth and holiness. It is that which Christ means here in his prayer, and where this unity is, which is very potent to win all who contradict it. It is admirable to mollify the hearts of the opposers. This is why it is so often reported of the early Christians that they were daily with one accord together. The evangelist Luke records this at least five times. So if nothing else will make you tender about causing any breaches in the church of God, this should, that by causing divisions you are doing as much as lies in you to hinder anyone who knows you ever to believe and to be converted. It is promised. Thirdly, this unity is promised as a great and special part of the covenant of grace. The very covenant which promises to write the law of God in our hearts and to put his fear in our inward parts also promises unity at the same time. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way and that they may fear me forever. As in Jeremiah chapter 32. This is one main term in the covenant of grace. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one in Zechariah 14.9. The meaning is that they shall not worship many gods or serve in different ways of worship, but they shall be one. To this purpose, Ezekiel also prophesies, as in Ezekiel 37, a prophecy which is not to be limited to the Jews only, but also to all the believing Gentiles. Oh, then in these times of differences and breaches among the godly, where should we turn? What should we plead and pray But these promises, O Lord, to be divided, to have altar against altar, church against church, prophet against prophet, is, is this what it means to have one heart and one way? Make good thy promise. It is spiritually helpful. Fourthly, unity is necessary because hereby a serviceable and beneficial mutual assistance in spiritual things is preserved. The people of God are compared to living stones built up together. While the stones remain in the building, they support one another, but if they are removed, it falls down. They are compared to members in the body. While they are joined together, there is a mutual ministry to each other, but when divided from the body... No part can receive any nourishment. So it is here, while the people of God are in union, oh, the wonderful help they are to one another. They provoke one another to good works, and they stir up one another's graces. But take these coals away from one another, and then the fire goes out. And this may be the reason why our Savior does not mention the sanctification and holiness of believers, but rather mentions their unity, because unity is a special means of preserving and increasing holiness. Two are better than one because of heat and of help, says the wise man in Ecclesiastes. And so it is in this work of grace, two are better than one to warm one another how greatly your zeal might help one another's lukewarmness and your faith against another's diffidence. If it is so great a sin to see your brother in temporal need and not relieve him, how much more is it a sin to see him in spiritual need and fail to help him? If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such one, as in Galatians 6. Put this bone in joint again. Experience tells us that where there are divisions and discord, there is no love, no compassion, no watching over one another. If this unity were established, a man would then strive for the growth of grace in others as in himself, and therefore observe that the power of godliness greatly abates when differences arise, There is not that heavenly communion, nor hearty concurrence in the ways of holiness, nor that mutual help of one another, as at other times. It sanctifies. Unity among the godly is so necessary that God many times permits sad and heavy persecutions to befall them, so that in this way their discords and divisions may be removed and they may be more endeared to one another. Times of prosperity in the church made the greatest heresies and schisms, but the times of bloody persecution made the godly more united. Thus the martyrs, some of them in Queen Mary's day, bewailed their differences and the contests they formerly had with one another, but prison and persecution made them highly prize one another. Joseph's brethren in their plenty envied and fell out with one another, but in their distress they were glad to cleave together." If sheep are scattered from one another, when a sudden storm arises, it makes them all huddle together. It may be that although just now the godly are so censorious, so shy, so strange to one another, God may in time work so that they will be able to enjoy one another, glad to have communion with each other. One godly man's company may then be worth more to you than the gold of Ophir. If love and godliness do not unite you, take heed, lest God send some outward trouble and affliction to put you together. If you do not embrace one another willingly, he may bind you in his chains together. His promise to Judah and Israel of making the two sticks one was after the cruel enmity and opposition which had been among them. It strengthens. Unity confirms and establishes the church. The old rule is that strength united is stronger. Sunbeams united together send out greater heat. It is union in an army, in a nation, in any society that preserves it. As a wise man said, public societies are immortal if they do not kill themselves by division. Our Savior confirmed this when he said, Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. He brings this in as an argument to show that he did not cast out devils by the help of devils, but by the Spirit of God. Thus, if the people of God cast out error and profaneness by God's Spirit, then they will not entertain error and profaneness themselves. For this would be to set a kingdom at variance within itself. The old rule is divide and conquer. It was a unique providence that Christ's bones should not be broken. To demonstrate by this, some say that though Christ died, yet he did not lose his strength, we must justly fear that God has some heavy scourge on the godly when they are first divided. If their bones are broken, their strength is weakened, but their evil and misery will not stop there. So it is a very foolish and weak thing in the godly to continue in their divisions. For don't they have mighty and numberless enemies? Doesn't the whole world hate them? Isn't the world like wolves to the godly, who are like sheep? Now if not only the wolf and the fox, but also one sheep will devour another, won't this bring utter ruin The Apostle Paul speaks fully to this. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed by another. Observe the notable expression, bite and devour one another. How unnatural this is to sheep. It is dogs that do this. And further, by this means you will consume one another. What the devils of hell and all your wicked adversaries could not do, you will do to one another. Do not look on your differences as mere sins, but as heavy omens of God's wrath. When the veil in the temple was torn in pieces, this was a presage of the destruction of the temple. It is beautiful. Seventhly, Unity is a most comely and beautiful thing to see. It is a ravishing thing to behold such a harmony among the godly. Therefore, the completeness of it will be in heaven. There, those many thousands will all have one heart and one tongue to praise God. There will be no difference. One will not have one way of seeing God and another another way. There will be no censuring, such as using reproachful terms against one another, Now, the nearer the people of God come to this on earth, the more similar they are to glorified saints in heaven and to those innumerable companies of angels that do God's will. The angels have no jarring and contests. One angel is not of one opinion and another of another. We ought to do God's will as the angels do it, not only in respect of zeal and purity, but in respect of unity as well. One of the songs of ascents is entirely in praises of unity, Psalm 133. Unity is compared to the precious ointment that was to be composed so carefully that no one was permitted to presume to make similar oil. It was only to be poured on the high priest. The psalmist also compares unity to the fruitful and pleasant dew on the mountains. The whole psalm is remarkable. Unity is for us to behold. The psalm begins with behold to draw others to admire it. As if to say, you have seen by bitter experience what disputes and differences produce. Now look at this. It is good and pleasant. Profit and pleasure win everyone. By this we can see our aversion to such unity that we need these low arguments to draw us. The psalmist does not say it is just holy and acceptable to God, but simply that it is good and pleasant. It is for brethren. He does not say men, but rather brethren, because sinful discord is apt to creep in amongst them. It is together. He does not speak of togetherness of location, but togetherness of soul. The sweetness of this unity is represented by the oil that was poured on Aaron and then ran down. It must be a peace Grounded on Christ, our head and high priest, which then should diffuse itself to others. Its profitableness is described by the dew. It is from heaven and so sanctifies the barren ground. This concord is God's gift only. And if received, it wonderfully blesses the church. Who would not have rejoiced to live in the days when all believers were of one heart and one soul? What a comfort it would have been to hear, no grudging or complaining at one another. But the devil, that envious one, quickly sowed tears among them. Ulcers and sores appeared on that body which once was as beautiful as Absalom's body. So the apostles pressed greatly that all things should be done in charity, that they fulfill the royal law by loving, and that they do not even grudge one another. This unity and peace is so glorious that the apostle makes it a goal, study, or be ambitious to be quiet, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. There is a great deal of carnal and worldly ambition after things that are fading and transitory. Here is godly and spiritual ambition to be a peacemaker. To be a peace preserver is the greatest glory God puts on us. It is in the nature of the godly. This duty of love and uniting is naturally built into the hearts of the godly. It should be that which they are most persuaded of and most inclined to. It is strange if you were to say, God has taught me such and such high things and has not taught me to love. The apostle speaks excellently. As touching brotherly love, you do not need me to write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. It is a shame and a reproach to us that we need a sermon for this. Oh, fear yourself. You boast of the teachings of God's Spirit above what others have, and yet you are not taught to love. Some people think that the preaching ministry is needless and they will not hear it. If nothing else convinces them of the need for it, yet this may, that God has not taught them in the duty of love enough. And therefore, they need the ministers of God to do it. But by this, you see that love and unity should be so planted in all the godly that we would not need to press and preach this any more than a hungry man need to be urged to eat his food, or the mother to love her child. God teaches this duty in the chief place it is in the nature of religion. All of the things in religion are reduced to one and agree in unity. Everything in religion tends to this. Why should the people of God not embrace it? The various unities in religion are used by the apostle to make a notable argument in Ephesians 4. Having exhorted believers to walk worthy of their calling in verse 1, the apostle gives instances of the graces that procure unity, with all lowliness and meekness, forbearing one another, as in Ephesians 4, two. These graces are the comely, worthy graces of our holy calling. You have the purpose of these graces in verse 3, endeavoring, that is, making it our aim, labor, study, and prayer, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This he enumerates in Ephesians 4, 4, why there should be such unity. There is one body. Christ does not have many bodies any more than anybody else has. The whole people of God are one body. How destructive it is when one part of the body should conspire against the welfare of another. Let grace do in this spiritual body what nature does in the physical body. Then there is one spirit. There is but one spirit that enlightens and sanctifies the whole church of God. Why then should there be so many contrary opinions and ways which pretend to be from the same spirit? Indeed, the apostle says there are a diversity of gifts and operations, yet there is the same spirit. He does not say that there are contradictions and the same spirit. That is as impossible as for darkness to come from the sun. If then there is only one spirit, the godly must not give an opportunity to the enemy to blaspheme, as they already do by saying that the Calvinistic spirit is one thing and the Lutheran spirit another. Again, there is one hope of your calling. We are called to one inheritance. There is only one heaven prepared for all the godly. Why then should they be so different in the way when at our journey's end, We must all be received into the same place of glory. It is true. Our Savior says that in his Father's house there are many mansion places, but although there is room enough for all, yet there is only one house. If one church cannot contain us now, how do we think one heaven will? It follows in Ephesians 4, 5 that there is one, that is Christ. Who is to be worshipped and served by us. Indeed, if there were many lords, as the Roman Catholics make many saints in heaven for worship, it would be no wonder that this led to several faiths and forms of worship. But the Lord Christ is one. The Apostle urged the Corinthians to reconcile their divisions in this way Is Christ divided? Unless there are many Christs, or Christ is divided into many parts, there ought not to be many divisions in the church. How absurd would it be to say, I have one Christ, while someone else says that he has another, and a third person says he has a third Christ? There is one faith, one system of doctrine to be believed. All the different details make up one entire truth. Although there are many religions and faiths in the world, yet indeed, there is only one. The apostle says, There are many that are called gods, gods in name, but to us there is but one God. There are many that are called religions, many called churches, but indeed there is only one. The next argument is that there is one baptism, one profession of the doctrine of faith. There is one kind of baptism, though there are many administrations of baptism. Christ has appointed only one way for the profession of his name— and one way for his being called on by us. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is also an argument for unity. The sacraments have unity in their meaning. They manifest one body and one spirit. How sad it is that there should be so many divisions in the church about sacraments which are the seals of unity and communion. Lastly, There is one God and Father of all, as it says in Ephesians 4, 6. Because there is only one God, we ought, therefore, to seek unity. God is one and cannot be divided in himself. He cannot command things to be believed or done contrary to himself. Let all these unities, therefore, make us serious in striving for unity. There is unity in hell where all the devils agree against the church. It was possible to have a legion of devils in one man. Will there then be unity against us? But we won't have unity among ourselves?
2: you for listening to today's episode of revive thoughts today's sermon was narrated by david siop if you like today's episode you can visit our website at revivethoughts.com. there you can find the transcript for today's sermon and all of the sermons we do here at revive thoughts you know what else you could find at our website troy what, what else can i find joel um maybe some uh, apparel maybe some merchandise Ooh. you know some some ways to represent uh, your your Fascination with old sermons and old church history.
0: Wait, Joel, are you telling me my favorite church history podcast studio now has church history merchandise I can wear representing that?
2: You know, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> you know, there's. The- <laughs> I think it's, we were uh, trying
0: to make church history uh, by being the slowest podcast to ever come up with a merch store. <laughs> Some of our shirts are going to say things like Arminian or Calvinist reformed, and they're going to have different names on it representing those camps. And you may go, hey, what are you doing trying to capitalize on these different camps? Well, what we're doing is we're one of the few shows that has people from all these different perspectives. And if you want to let us know which of those perspectives you like, go buy one of those shirts and let us know that way, because we don't, you know, we don't know what you are listening to and which one you're about. So tell us by that way. And also we just thought it'd be kind of fun if people could buy shirts with the names of some of their favorite people on those shirts. We also have the All My Heroes Are Dead shirt. And that doesn't mean when you wear it out and about, you know, that might scare people because they might think you killed all your heroes, but you just have to explain to them, no, no, you don't understand. All the Christians I'm looking up to, they just lived a really long time ago and you can listen to them at Revive Thoughts. And we also have nice shirts about Martyrs and Missionaries at Revive Studio, all the kind of stuff you would expect. We have uh, some mugs and some other stuff like that too. It looks quite nice and we would love for you guys to go check them out, find something that you like, and again, you know, there's a supply chain store shortage happening, but not at our merch store. So if you could cause that problem for us, we would love to take a look at it.
2: <laughs> we would love to see uh, the demand so high that we yes. run into the supply.
0: Please let us know what that can be like by, by buying some shirts for us. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.